we all have to be, especially as vendors, incredibly responsible what types of design patterns, what types of messages we put out there into the world. Because believe it or not, if you actually look at who shapes opinions, those are very few people. And there is a lot of attention on them. And we have to make sure we deal with that attention in a very, very responsible manner. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Casper van Gutenberg, founder and CEO of Humanitech, a product that allows companies build your internal developer platform in days, not years relieving pressures on ops by enabling developer self-service. Now, Casper spent the last 10 years building and running software companies from retail applications to door-to-door campaign technology, even monitoring and evaluating NGOs. His observations of common startup development challenges during his time ultimately led him to found Humantech. So in this show, we dive into everything from mentorship to psychology to building developer platforms and creating paved roads to help other people build even better products and ideas on top of your own. It's a fascinating conversation that I think you're really going to enjoy. So before we get started, let's dive in on one of the first key turning points for him and an interesting conversation with his father. I had a conversation with my father and he said, what kind of advisors do you have around you? It was just this one sentence and then he had to go. The conversation was over. That was a huge turning point for me because I realized that Becoming a CEO so early in my career, much too early, you are in this phase of, oh, I can do everything and you have nice business cards. And yes, I work hard, but it's also like this is such a glorious way of spending your day. And it feels like you're still the 19th century hero on the Napoleonic battlefield. And I realized that it's not a game. There are a huge amount of people depending on you. There is a lot of capital. And, and I see that with a lot of people starting up, there is a lot you have to learn. And you have yeah. to learn that incredibly fast. And there are all of these people telling you that in inspirational quotes on LinkedIn, of course. But then as if you start up, you always think, oh, yeah, I mean, that applies to many people, but me. But when I was there and I was really not doing well because of problems that I caused myself. Ultimately, that's the thing when you're the CEO. It's your problem. You created the problem. You have to fix that problem. It is on you. So at that point, I said, okay, wait a minute. The time where you say, oh, you're just young and you're trying stuff out and you can do things 80%, that time is over. You really don't have good advisors because you were too arrogant or self-confident or whatever your problem was. You yeah. have to get your shit together and you really have to jump and act on it. And there is another company that I, I greatly admire the way they structured things called Contentful. So they're mainly in San Francisco and, and Berlin. One of the things that I observed with them and some of their managers actually told me is that they had this approach of bringing in high profile advisors and saying in certain areas of the business, And these people would invest a little bit of money and then they could double their option stock 
if they would help in a certain area and help means have a session with the team yeah brilliant individual team like once a week so we started doing that and that made a huge difference it took me a while to understand what made a huge difference and i would explain it as follows these advisors if you really get the best in the world in an industry right these advisors will tell you what is the absolute elite way of doing a certain thing right then you don't have to be there right now and i'm telling that everybody who works with me you like you don't have to be world class today but you have to know what is my relative position to elite status what is my delta and the job that you have as a ceo is to make sure to know one of the jobs what's my delta to being world class and then pushing people and yourself first and foremost yourself to actually closing that gap as fast as possible that's like it's sort of solution that is and when i started to realize that that was a huge turning point for me and i had always this experience that if you ask people for help they will help you i once wrote an email when i was really devastated about a certain engineering management problem to the cto of of github jason warner and what are the odds of the cto of github who was just acquired for 7 billion by microsoft to respond to a cold email by a guy in berlin who has zero he has no context it's not that i was famous or anything and 10 minutes later he writes back and says like sure this is my pa happy to talk with you and then you have a conversation with them and you're honest and upfront and say hey i'm not very good at this can you help me i appreciate that you are much better at what you're doing and i think you can make a big impact here and people want to have that experience and they want to help and so i've been able to assemble this excellent group of advisors in every single dimension of the business and they have review sessions with us every week until we don't need, need it anymore and they make a tremendous difference so that was my turning point look just so much to unpack here first of all jason warner's amazing by the way he's a i know he's someone you just like spending time with he's a, a great guy but one of the things so subtleties here that i really want to underline because i think it's something people hear about and i often know a lot of people want to be advisors to start up but there's something very unique about what you said there first of all they invest in the company that they actually have skin in the game rather than just these people who sort of show up and give you some advice and go out the door i'm a huge believer in that right i'll only advise companies where i actually have invested in them or actually have upside in them you have to be part of the team to see the success i think that's a huge point for people to think about about not only sourcing people to work with but getting them to show commitment that they're they're on the journey with you and this idea of not being afraid to ask for help i'm with you on this i've always been blown away by how willing people are to help if you're genuine if you show up and just be your authentic self and say i'm trying to get better at this can you help me like recognizing that they may have insight that you don't and it's really special i think sometimes when people write back to you as someone like a counterbar of jason who yeah cto github huge company it, they feel miles away and yes they want to help people you know because they've been there too and i think there's something really special about that that gives me hope not only for the community we operate in but just like in general 
as people trying to build businesses, it's lonely. And there's no lonelier job than the CEO. In many ways, a lot of stuff lands on the CEO's desk, right? And who do you turn to? I love the fact as well that you call out coaching. This is another thing that comes up again and again and again. It's actually one of the things I look for in people I work with. Are they actively pursuing or creating coaches and mentors around them to help them get better? Because I find the people that aren't doing that can't actually improve. They're stuck in a way that they might think they have the, all the answers or they're afraid to ask for help. So there's a lot, a lot of interesting parts there. Like what helped you learn about getting coaching, the mentoring, the advice around you to help you get to this level of world class? Because it, it's an act of humility, I feel, to do that. That's the next thing. And it's actually the, the number one trait that I'm looking at when I'm, I'm hiring people is, are they humble? I think it's so important to be humble. Being humble requires a certain maturity level of your personality because you understand, I know a very small part of what the world, how the world works. And there is a tremendous amount of things that I don't work. And so being coachable is to a certain degree has something to do with, with seniority level. And that doesn't mean that you can't have that at 20 years old. I've seen 20 year olds that had that. I didn't, but I've seen that. So it's not a function of age, but it's really a function of seniority of mind, if you want. And there was another moment for me that really helped me understand the value of that. Part of my job is that I'm, I'm speaking to a tremendous amount of companies that go through the platforming journey and all of that. And I'll speak to many, many technology leaders in very large companies all around the world. To give you an idea, I spoke about with around 250 unique organizations in the last 12 months. I started to realize a pattern and realizing that pattern has really helped me. And the pattern is that senior people ask dumb questions. Dumb questions is a stark word. I rather mean simple questions. Yeah, senior yeah, yeah, people yeah, yeah. are like a staff engineer. There was this one staff engineer at IBM that really astounded me. That guy sat back and said, okay, I want to understand that in detail. And he started with simple, seemingly simple questions. And he went deeper and deeper and deeper. He had that self-confidence that you have if you understand that you have to get, understand the basics and how these things actually interrelate with each other to then really make sense of a more nasty underlying problem. And that observation paired with many more junior minds that I'm observing are saying, oh yeah, yeah I know this, we can go over this. And I completely, of course, yes, I can relate to this. And I'm seeing that like, I can, I think the most thing that I hear very often, I can do pattern matching on this, like maybe. And so this was a huge moment for me. And then actually the next level is to say, well, and this is sort of, also very complex. What's the right mentorship? What are the right mentors? You have to be incredibly careful and mindful in the way you're choosing your input. And you say, Jason will be correct in 80% of the cases, right? And that will hold particularly true for areas of, of your business where you do not have to innovate. This is one of the key other mistakes that I made is that I tried to innovate everywhere innovate and go to market and innovate in sales and innovate in product and innovate there. And 
if you ask mentors to help you innovate, you know, nothing comes out because they might be 10% better in innovating than you are, but they don't have the context that you have, right? Absolutely. Mentors are very, very good. If you have a repeatable problem where you can take an off-the-shelf solution to a certain degree and replicate that. So if you found a go-to-market motion and you know exactly, I'm doing enterprise sales that starts with a bottom-up sign-up and then I have to do a POC and I have to move them in an enterprise deal into a close phase and then there's a customer. If you know that this is your assumption on how your product actually sells and then you get a sales leader who has built exactly that motion three times, that person can make, can be of tremendous value. But if you're getting somebody who has done bottom-ups adoption, never has to, had to deal with enterprise sales, was focused on a B2C customer, they can come in with a lot of authority and tell you something and it will guide you into the entirely wrong direction. So it's not only about finding the right mentors, incentivizing the right way, but also curating whom you listen to and then actually listen to them very, very thoroughly and execute in this. And the last thing that I want to say is I even have one mentor, one of our best mentors who wasn't able to invest, right? But, and it's the only case, but it has been working tremendously well for two years. And that was because there was mentor problem fit, if you want. The problem that we had, it fit exactly to what that guy was interested and very, very, very passionate about. And then he could see that we would be coachable. Nothing is more rewarding to a mentor, and I can see that myself, than you can see, oh, I'm actually making an impact. There is another human being that can benefit from what I'm saying and can take that and actually improve the own life and the lives of the people around them. This is incredibly powerful. Yeah, well, that's the ultimate success metric, you know, is hopefully helping people in the way that they can leverage it. It's so funny, right? You, you mentioned this idea of asking simple questions. One of my favorite people and actually great mentor of mine is Gibson Biddle. He was the former chief product officer at Netflix. And one of his favorite questions to ask people when he first met them was like, explain this to me like I'm a dummy. He would always like get people like, explain this to me like I know nothing about this. It's such a great disarming question. And especially when you meet someone of that caliber, you're like, oh, they're going to ask me these really sophisticated, very difficult, hard, educated questions. Well, sure, they might, but they won't be the first question they ask you. And this idea of really sort of, you know, immersing yourself in these domains to understand them, it's a really interesting insight. I also love this notion that you shared about, I'm also a believer that I love this notion of like mentor fit, product market fit, or mentor problem fit. I think think it's so true because it's also like sometimes you need people to be with you at certain stages of the journey. And then sometimes you actually need them to go away as well. Like they may have serviced the need that it may not be the right fit anymore. And I also find the great people who I've either worked with or hopefully been able to offer help to is like somebody calls it because you have such a great collaboration that you can say, you know what? I'm not the right person for this stage of the journey or or this problem is I'm not the best person to help you with that. And again, it's another act of humility and actually helpfulness of saying, I can't help you anymore. 
one of the companies I've been working with for two years. We're at that stage. They're a fabulous company. I love them. I think they're going to be super successful. But what the help that they need on the next leg of their journey, I'm not the person to give it to them. They need to go in a different direction. And it's one of these like bittersweet things where you're like, great. But you know, I own a large share of the company. I wanted to see it successful. I'm never leaving them, but I'm not the person that needs to give them the advice they need right now to help them grow. And it's really fascinating. You're just reminding me of all this as, as you're sort of talking about it. So tell me more. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about your unlearning moment, even to start the current business that you're working on right now with uh, Humanitech, right? Fascinating business. Explain a little bit about what, what was the moment that your aha moment to go, actually, we need to start building this product. What you sort of had to unlearn from the developer experience and building to products and tools to help developers, actually. So my story, and I'm, I'm talking about the beginning because I would obviously want that to last, but the beginning of my story is not as different as the, the story of Jason, where we're both not really coming from being hardcore developers ourselves, right? I mean, I can sort of lead, read most programming languages. I can sort of write you a website. I know that platforming and DevOps space in detail, don't get me wrong, but Am I comparable in my coding performance to the principal engineers at Humanitech? No, like not even closely, closely. <laughs> I would never on earth pass our acceptance tests. That's always a good benchmark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't actually be able to get hired into this company. So I decided to run it instead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that I can't have very technical conversations. And my job profile is a different one. But I, what I'm saying is I'm, I looked at the problem like from the sidelines and I found it frankly absurd. There is a lot about the IT industry that I find absurd. A lot of patents that the industry applies, you look at them and you think, why on earth are people doing it that way? The most strange example for me is you're a company of a thousand developers. And you have all of them writing unstructured configuration files in dozens of different ways. And you put them into yeah. your, some repositories and then they might work, they might not work. And it's so hard to maintain. And then the developer leaves the company and the next one joins and nothing is documented. And you have multi-billion dollar companies depending on that. I've seen so many things that literally run the world. You interact with these products every single day. The quality of the stuff in the background, they make you think as if this would be so great because they sponsor some meetups, and, but it's an absolute disaster. And I was looking at this and thinking, like, why on earth this has been always so costly and so painful when I was leading and building these other software companies? It was such a disaster. And I'm not talking about it takes a long time to build software. Of course it does. And that's totally fine, right? And I'm fine with it takes a long time to develop business logic. I'm not that fine to see, hey, we have to do that rollback. And it took us one and a half days. Just not something I'm fine with. Or we're sinking that amount of time in maintenance or all of these things that are incredibly frustrating to the team that are you are creating so little value. And I was diving deeper at this and saying, I was really puzzled by trying to understand why is this actually happening? And 
we frankly did that as at the last company. And we started streamlining stuff and building platforms internally. And we realized that it's also a psychological issue of the people involved, if you want, right? You have yeah. domain expertise. Several people want to keep that domain expertise seemingly, but then again, they also don't want to work on the boring stuff. You have developers that don't want to be abstracted away from things. I think this is so important. People write stuff as code and they should continue writing stuff as code and they should never be abstracted away. I learned that the hard way. You can never take context away from engineers, right? You cannot abstract things away. I'm abstracting, yes, but then again, never take context. Observability is so important. People need to understand exactly, I'm doing this command. If I want, these are all of the files underneath that lead to a certain result. That is very, 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 very important. Only then you have confidence. I like to compare that to natural language processing. If yeah. Ziri works in 95% of cases, but it fails you in 5%, you will never use Ziri because it just sucks. That's the way human nature is. And so the same holds true for abstractions. Actually, abstractions are a dangerous word. You shouldn't build abstractions. And that's why I like this Netflix analogy. You should build golden paths. And then again, Jason played a vital role. He was an SVP at Heroku and he moved yeah. to GitHub. And he had the same observation that I had. The way we're doing it here, it just doesn't make sense. So they started to build a non-abstracting Heroku that you could deviate from at any point in time, but you could get certain guarantees if you stay on the golden path. Yeah. And that is a core observation. How can you establish golden paths without taking context away? How can you reduce cognitive load so the developers can actually focus on the business logic? How can you design a system? And that's something that I'm so focused and so interested in at the moment. How can you design systems that drive standardization by design? And in the end, everything we do somehow circles around these key things that have always been a trade-off and that will probably remain to be a trade-off. But how can you relieve that trade-off a little bit and improve the work of many, many, many people by, again, designing systems that drive standardization by design? I love this. I'm living this right now at the moment, right, in the Venture Studio. Not so much from the technical side, but from the way that we build companies. Right. The goal is to do 100 companies in the next five years. So that means that every startup that shows up, it's an idea. It's a new bunch of people coming together. They have to get organized, get aligned, have a set of tools and ways of working that they can collaborate with one another and a process and a system to start bringing the companies to life. Now, by no means do I want to tell people exactly every single thing that they have to do. And, how, and you need to give people creative expression. But I use this analogy of a paved road all the time. Because yes, I will want people to go off piece depending on the product they're trying to build. But right. if we don't have a paved road that people understand from the moment we have an idea to bringing it to market, to testing it, to scaling it, ultimately getting it funded by external companies, there needs to be some level of standardization where we can collaborate quickly, that we can understand what's working well, what's not working well. And it's such an important part of actually good 
innovation actually is that there is a base case that we're leveraging our best thinking that people can build upon. And we're not like reinventing the wheel every single time for how do we do things. And what's fascinating to me about your product is it's almost like you create this idea of a marketplace of reusable components in a way that people can sort of take things and build upon them to make them better and then give them back to the developer community that they're part of, be it inside the company, outside the company. It's a fascinating idea of creating like reusability and modularization in the context of software development. I think about that in the terms of, you know, the reason a business model canvas is so valuable is because it's a structured way for people to describe an idea and people can interpret it, understand it and give feedback quickly. In the world of developers, configuration files to spin up servers, manage servers, and lets developers actually then get on with the business logic building. Having those tools is invaluable. What have been some of the things you've seen, like the unlearning that the industry has had to go through? Because we had this problem with ThoughtWorks. Everybody wanted to rewrite configuration files all the time. And I was actually working with Keith Morris when he had this idea of infrastructure as code on one of the projects that we were building with Channel 4. And to me, it made logical sense. But I couldn't understand why there was such pushback from developers because they were like, oh, no, no, I... I want to write the infrastructure files myself. I want to write the config files myself. I want to understand. It just never made sense to me. Like, why do we keep reinventing the wheel? So tell me what you've seen the industry have to unlearn, as you've sort of alluded to a little bit. Yeah. I love this analogy of comparing other industries and especially building a company to that, because we're also always acting as if IT technology is this special place where all of the sudden they're in completely different rules. Gravitation doesn't apply anymore. And that's actually not the case. It's actually a pretty normal industry. There's nothing very special about it. It's just a little newer than the steel industry. You're asking exactly the right question. And it's less the industry, it's the individual psychological profile. I believe that writing, we've seen that throughout the last 20, 30 years, people have always been critical about being removed from something. You know, they, they wanted to really write zeros and ones several decades ago. And then they really wanted to write everything in low-level languages. And then they really wanted to write everything in Python. You know, and so we're slowly pushing up. I think the reason is that, and I want to include myself in that, I've been especially earlier on, gaining self-confidence from information asymmetry. So I was able to understand something that other people don't understand. And if you don't believe, if you don't fundamentally, if you don't believe that doing something faster will yield 10% more, if you want, if you don't believe in personal growth and in growth of your company and all of that, right, then you are afraid of making things simpler because you deep inside you, you're never really sure what you're going to do with the additional time. And with abstraction, <laughs> I love this. You're giving away information asymmetry and giving away information asymmetry if you don't trust that you can actually get to the next level and make the delta. That requires a huge amount of self confidence. And I'm saying all of that 
assuming that you keep the context. Everything I'm saying sort of doesn't apply if you are literally abstracted away from, from something. And your IAC example is great. It made so much sense, sense to introduce an IAC layer, right? Because you can express something much, much faster, but you still understand the building blocks. You still understand what's my networking component here, how's my database structured and all of that. You're not actually taking a lot of that context away. Now, the wrong way of doing it would be to say, hey, you want to have a MongoDB Atlas instance? Why don't you just execute that CLI command and we'll give you what we think makes, makes most sense? Yeah. If that works in 95% of cases and you're happy, that might even not be enough because the developer wants to understand the context. So this is the way I'm thinking about this. And I think this is the key thing that the industry has to unlearn. There is no reason to believe that information asymmetry makes sense for anybody. And you have to be more self-confident and believe that intelligent, opaque abstraction, if you want, that doesn't go at the expense of context, is actually a good thing for your career. It's a very personal and a very individual thing. Yeah, no, this is fascinating. This is so funny to talk, even as we started off talking about mentoring and open yourself up to new information and, you know, recognizing where you have weak points, recognizing your strong points, where you need help, where you don't. I feel like this is actually a core constituent way of people's ability to create systems that in some respects might make them redundant in a way, or yeah. their current skill set redundant. Right. It could be scary. I like the way that you frame it of like, there's a, you need confidence to say, if I create a system that sort of makes all of my knowledge or that I have available to other people to leverage and build upon, what does that make me? Am I helping or do I become redundant and no longer useful? Right. It's a really interesting, like how people respond to that question, right? Because I, even as I say that out loud, while I'm trying to build a system to build companies and nobody, all the knowledge I've ever learned, I'm trying to expose to people, systematize it so they can take it and make it ultimately, they better make it better. We need them to make it better. But yeah, then what, then what do I do? You know, what am I, right. am I just like getting coffee? But as you say, like there's parts of me then to go, right, well, then I'll be able to help these people even more because we'll get onto higher order problems or they may build things better than I could have built them. And but it's really fascinating that moment to just sort of say, I'm going to share all the knowledge, the best knowledge that I know, put it out there, systematize it, and let other people make it better. And I'm going to trust that process is actually going to bring more good to me than if I try to hold it and be like a centralized point of people have to come to me for the answer, because that's not scalable. It's really interesting as you frame it like that and how to have the confidence to do that. It's very interesting questions for people to sort of lament a little bit. And so how have you helped people have that confidence or maybe see why that's better paths to take in the long term? Because I can think of many people I've worked with who loved the idea of being the gatekeeper of the information. And you know, they love to put out the fires. They love to be the person that came in and fixed the code or why did you do it this way? Or uh, this sort of mentality, actually, it's kind of an interesting one. How do you help people get past it? My personal opinion, at the speed at which you have to build a company, you cannot change the psychological profile of a human being. You can do that if you are a social worker, maybe, but you cannot do that 
all like I do a lot of webinars and appearances and speak about this stuff. And but fundamentally, I think you you either hit a nerve or you don't hit a nerve. And you can design your product in a way that people are not afraid of the product. That, that I think is very important. Like these products, they have a tremendous ROI. But the question is, how do you make sure people are not afraid of what you're offering? And honestly, you don't want people to be afraid because you don't have, I'm not in the room with them. I can't calm them down. Yeah, totally. You can't be there. So it's the system or the product is there with them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So they're alone with their product. I'm not evangelizing any. You can only re-emphasize what people are already thinking. Now, the thing is, we've just done Platform Con, like a conference around that. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Space, first conference ever on that topic, 6,800 attendees. And we've, we're seeing this tremendous growth and in interest. And that just means that people think about these things more or less the same way. And they're looking for ways to accommodate the fear and the psychological profile of the people they work with to create these golden paths. In the end, it all comes down to psychology. If I'm confronted with a singular human being who is afraid of that, often opting to say, hey, and it, this sounds counterintuitive, you should make sure in your psychological load balancing, if you want, to use an IT term. <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. To not be psychologically too much dependent on your job. And that holds true even and in particular for people that build businesses that has to have to do with the amount of pressure that you have to deal with because it's, it's really a brutal thing to do. And I just read a book that I highly recommend. It's called The Dawn of Everything. And it's criticizing this idea that we've been induced with throughout history classes, really that the 19th and 20th century has repeated over and over again that Rousseau and Hobbes were correct in that the Western civilization, if we call ourselves, like, is, is a step into more happiness, in, into a better way of organizing society. They actually make you feel like it's the only way you can organize societies. And there was this very interesting phase in history where French philosophers would have debates with Native Americans, right? And they would go back and forth and they tried to say like, hey, Christian belief in our way of doing things. And the Native Americans would say, have you ever heard of any European that came to Indians, lived with them, and then wanted to go back to Western civilization? No. And so I think we have to get away from that idea that, that we define ourselves by the jobs that we do to actually comply with this capitalistic system that we live in. I'm a driver of that system, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm a yeah. believer in growth. But there is what we do in, in business, and then there is what we are as humans. And what we are as humans and our self-worth is not defined by whether we're very good at Terraform in the end. You know, that is something that it's one thing. And so I really believe if you look at this at it from that perspective, if you're finding stability as a human being 
as yourself, really detached from what you're doing, then that is so important. I once had a conversation that really touched me with an Oracle manager, a veteran who said, I've done all of these years and now I'm 60 and they threw me out early and I'm, I'm not like a doctor who can mentor younger yeah, yeah, doctors totally, yeah. Yeah. because the technology has evolved and now I'm here and all my self-worth was defined by how good I was at Oracle databases and n nobody cares about Oracle databases anymore. You don't want to have that problem. Uh, yeah, it's, it's such a great lesson though for people, right? Like this notion of like, if you wed and define yourself by the tools you use, you're going to struggle because technology is going to change. The world's going to change. It was one of the actual fundamental reasons for writing on learn. The hardest thing for people was not learning new stuff. It was on learning their existing behavior and mindset, yes. especially if it had made them successful in the past. People feel like, I've, oh, I found my formula. So I'll stick to my formula because it's working for me. And then one day you wake up and you're an Oracle database engineer and nobody uses Oracle anymore. And you're standing there going, but I only know how to use Oracle. This is yeah. what has worked for me for me. Like it's a disruption. So one of the things I, I think it's really important to really encourage and emphasize here is part of growth is getting outside your comfort zone, learning new things, trying new things. I remember I had Kent Beck on the show one time, and he says when someone tells him something that he totally disagrees with, thinks is wrong, it's never going to work, the first thing he does is try it. <laughs> so he actually experiences the thing. There's a lot to be said about growth and comfort, I always say, can't coexist. You have to constantly keep um, challenging yourself to develop. And I think, again, it's great to hear what you're doing to try to challenge this industry to keep developing and bring the new products there. So looking ahead, Casper, then, what are you most excited about? What are on the horizon? You've just done PlatformCon to see like, you know, six and a half thousand people show up to like this call about the future, what platform building could look like. What's top of mind for you about after an event like that? Like what were you left thinking where the future is going? The industry is differentiating. I don't think that people have to be afraid of low code. I don't think that our jobs will be made redundant. There is a huge, we're 26 million software developers right now. We need three, four, five times that, right? Oh, easy. Yeah. We are going to build more specialized systems. We are going to serve more users. And only because there are other parts of the business process that are now done with low-code stuff, it doesn't mean that there are a lot of nasty things that we have to do and that are much too granular to actually build, put into standard building blocks. So the show that we're in will go on for the next, for the foreseeable future. I think we will see an era of higher automation and into a certain degree abstraction. I don't think we will, in my opinion, deviate from the code-based path. I do not believe in UI-based systems. I don't think they work. I don't believe in click ops. I don't believe that UI layers can provide tangible return on investment. And so I'm excited to see how can we take the well-versed workflow the developer has right now and don't interrupt that, but make it a whole lot better. And this is something that I'm just generally passionate about. And then for me, community really matters. And it makes me 
very happy to see how healthy that platform engineering community has become. Yeah, and I, every single day, I have people reaching out and contributing and sharing ideas. And I hope that is something that continues. In the end, what we're doing is much, much bigger than a single company. Companies come and go. But I think we all have to be, especially as vendors, incredibly responsible what types of design patterns, what types of messages we put out there into the world. Because believe it or not, if you actually look at who shapes opinions, those are very few people. And there is a lot of attention on them. And we have to make sure we deal with that attention in a very, very responsible manner. Well, look, it's been fabulous to have both a psychological and technical and mentoring conversation (laughs) with you today. Like, This is why I love doing this show and having guests like yourself on it. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much for spending time with us. And I'm very excited to see and continue growth for Humantech. I think it's a great product. People should check it out. And, And thanks for joining us. Barry, thank you so much. This was a delightful conversation and have a wonderful day.